the church, remember Christ by our love and unity. So we all, to some extent, like drama, especially when it's on TV and hopefully not in our lives. And many of you, many of us, probably have enjoyed period pieces or dramas set in historical times. Some of you may have watched shows like Downton Abbey, The Crown, or even Bridgerton. You don't have to admit it. I know there are people in here that watch these shows, right? Or for some of you, you like Chinese shows like Ren Sijian or Yan Shi Gong Yue. I have no idea what these shows are. I literally asked Share for some period Chinese pieces. Well, let me set the stage just a little bit for a riveting drama that occurred in the early 1500s. And see, there was this major battle that was happening. It wasn't a military war like World War I. Right? or World War II, this war was one that was religious, that was spiritual. But because in Europe at that time, the heads of state, the kings and queens, were seen as the heads of their religions, the head of their church, it was also one that was political. Now on one side of the war, on one side of this war, you have the Roman Catholic Church with its thousand-year history, all its power, influence, and money. And on this other side, you have this new upstart, the Reformation Protestants. All right, and this war involved everyone from kings and queens of nations to the Pope, to other religious leaders, as well as notable names like John Calvin and Martin Luther. And the major divide, the major point of conflict between the two sides was what we call, what they called the Eucharist or what we call now communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, today, this is the issue that we will be going through from our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17-34. So if you'd like, you can take out your copy of God's Word, or it's also in the bulletin. You can follow along as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17-34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in that part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats, drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we, will not, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when we come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the Word of God. Previously, like a TV, like a TV show, previously on, no, previously on 1 Corinthians, we went through chapters 8 through 10, where Paul rebuked the Corinthians on issues of practicality and ethics, practical and ethical issues. Issues like eating food that was used for idol worship or his authority as an apostle. A couple weeks ago, Joe preached on the first section of chapter 11 where Paul is, has now shifted from ethical issues and is now addressing issues of communal worship and unity of the church. And Joe, Joe looked at how Paul tackled issues of headship and submission between men and women in the church. And this section of chapter 11, we're going to be looking at how um, the local and the universal church is supposed to interact with one another. All right? And so our main idea today is we, the local and universal church, in brackets, remember Christ by our love and unity. So we, the church, remember Christ by our love and unity. So we'll look at this idea in three sections. Section one, unity neglected. And this is verses 17 to 22. Section two, remember the coming Christ. These are verses 23 to 26, Paul's presentation of the Lord's Supper. And then section three, examine your hearts. And these are the rest from verses 27 to 32. Now, let's look at a little bit of what's going on in the church at this time. All right. So in verse 18, Paul notes that there are divisions among the church when they gather. And in verse 20 to 21, we learn that when they're gathering together, they are partaking the Lord's Supper together. So he says, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So we know they're gathering, and there are some divisions. Some people are going hungry, and some people are going drunk. Well, we can't gleam what the details are, right? So we have to look at the context of the situation. All right, so let's give the situation a bit of context, because we, right now, we know the supper, actually, for the past probably a couple hundred years, the Lord's Supper, we know it as a highly formalized process at the end of our gathering together. Right? But, but the context of the early church was very different. You see, prior to Emperor Constantine in 300 AD, the majority of people outside of Jewish Christian circles, they did not operate on a seven-day schedule. Right? 
not, they didn't operate like us, like, oh, we work five days and have two days of weekend. No, they just, everyone just worked seven days, right? And you found rest when you could. And so if, if Christians wanted to gather on the first day of the week, which is what they did, they needed to meet early in the morning or late at night, all right? So if Christians wanted to gather at that time, before Emperor Constantine mandated a seven-day schedule, they needed to meet early in the morning or late at night. And remember, the Corinthian church was a very diverse crowd, right? Uh, culturally diverse, ethnically diverse, and religiously, their backgrounds were also very diverse. They were Christians, they had previous pagan idol worshipers who are, are Jewish, and previously pagan idol worshipers who are now all brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? But not only that, they came from very different backgrounds of class as well. There were traders, there were slaves, and there were those that are wealthy as well. So what's actually happening at this period of time when they're gathering for church is that we have some, now they're coming, some who may be a little bit more wealthy, right? They're a little richer. They're able to, to skip work more easily. They're able to take a little bit more time off. See, they're coming to gather, right? And they can come at any time they want. It doesn't really matter to them. And when they're coming, right, they're coming with their baskets of food. They're bringing, you know, what, what they would call at that time the agape feast or their love feast. They would gather and they would, what, they, what we call now fellowship, right? They bring their baskets of food. They bring their nice sandwiches. They bring their sushi, right? They bring their Cabernet Sauvignon, right? I know nothing about wine, so I think that's how you pronounce it, right? They bring their nice red wine, right? And their fellowship with, with each other. And then as they continue, later in the day, you have the traders after work come in. And then the last group coming in and joining them, you have the slaves, who after they get off work, they'll be lucky if they're able to have a stale piece of bread that's left over from their master's table. Right? And then once everyone's here, they're just naturally transitioning from their love or agape feasts, and they've been fellowshipping, gathering, and worshiping together, they naturally transition to the Lord's Supper. Now, or to breaking bread, you know, as, as Jesus called it. Now there's a group of people, as they've gathered, who've been feasting and indulging in various drinks, and they're in a jolly mood, right? And then on the other side, you have a group of people who've just worked a 16-hour shift and only have a piece of dry bread, if they even have that. And we see this in verse 21, right? When Paul says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So this is the context of what's, going, of what's happening in their gathering, their weekly gatherings, right? This is how the divisions are occurring. And we clearly see that Paul is very upset at this situation. He's extremely upset. Let's look at the words that he's actually using to rebuke it, right? Rebuke them, right? Paul is rebuking them for the divisions they've created when they're meeting for worship and engaging in the Lord's Supper, right? And one interesting side note on divisions that Paul says in verse 19, right? He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. All right, so that's, that's really interesting. That Paul knows that even when man's sinfulness causes factions, God can use it for his holy purpose. 
His holy purpose is of weeding out those who are genuine in their faith and their love of Christ and those who are not. Right? So, so God still uses man's divisions for his purpose, according to Paul. Now, specifically, the divisions that Paul addresses in this chapter no longer uh, are the previously mentioned divisions in chapter 1. You guys probably maybe have a faint idea when we went through the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. Paul was already rebuking them for their, their divisions, right? They were forming divisions based on, uh, on, on who, which preacher they liked, right? I, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. So these divisions had nothing to do, the current divisions in chapter 11 had nothing to do with teaching or preaching. The divisions being addressed here are socioeconomic. They're divisions of eco economy and class. And he addresses, he rebukes these, these divisions by saying to the church twice, two times, in the beginning and the, in the end, in verse 17 and 22, I shall not commend you. I shall not commend you for your, how you are gathering. And we see just how angry he is with what the Corinthian church is practicing. Right? In the second half of verse 17 and verse 20, he says, when you come together, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And in verse second half, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. All right, let's reflect on that for a moment. Let's just reflect on that. Paul is saying that their heart and their behavior, that when they gather together, right, their heart and their behavior, when they gather to worship God and share in the Lord's Supper, is actually worse for them. It's actually worse for them. That it would be better if they did not meet at all. That is how severe his rebuke is. That it would be better if you guys did not meet rather than meeting in this manner. Right? And then lastly, his last rebuke on divisions, he says in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That's quite extreme language there, right? Paul characterizes their loveless behavior of the Corinthians, meaning all believers. He's talking to this entire church as believers, right? He's not saying anyone is a non-believer. He's talking to them as brothers and sisters. That's why he can be so honest with them. He's talking to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? And he's saying that as, when you guys meet, there are those of you who are neglecting the poor and have nothing to eat. And when you do that, you are despising the church of God and humiliating those brothers and sisters. Let me say that again. He's characterizing their behavior as despising the church of God and humiliating others. Now, like me, when you're seeing this, if, you're, if you've seen it for the first time in a while, you may think, you may look at the situation that's happening in this church, and there are a group of people that are so poor that they're going hungry, and another group that is so well-off and so well-fed and well-liquored that they're actually getting drunk in their church gatherings. They're literally drunk in their church. And you're probably thinking, how is this even possible? How is this happening? Is there no one like doing anything about this? How could they let this happen? 
how could they be so oblivious and so neglectful of their own brothers and sisters who they are worshiping God together with? How could this happen? Well, when we read this, when we look at Paul's rebuke, this situation should cause each and every one of us to also reflect and ask ourselves, are there divisions like this going on in WSBC? We should be reflecting and asking ourselves, are there divisions like this going on in WSBC? Are there class distinctions? Are there economic distinctions? Beyond that, maybe you make distinctions based on nationality, based on culture, or do you have any biases towards others in this church based on the way they dress, based on their educational background, maybe the job that they hold? Do you gravitate, do you lean towards certain people in this church or lean away because of the lifestyle that they have? Or maybe you have certain judgments because you feel like you're more holy than them. I spend more time in Bible studies and church, and this person just comes on Sunday. Maybe you believe that you're a better Christian than others. If you reflect and God convicts you that you do hold these judgments against other brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're participating in any divisions against other followers of Christ, then let Paul's response to their behavior sink in because he is extremely upset with the situation that is going on. Essentially what the Corinthian church has done is they have not differentiated what the church looks like with what the world looks like. They've brought in what the world looks like and they've brought that exactly in to the Corinthian church. There's no differentiation. And his response to this, we see in verses 23 to 26, which we come to our second point, remember the coming Christ. Remember the coming Christ in verse 23 to 26. So, so first section, um, unity neglected. We see Paul rebuking the Corinthian church. Now 23 to 26, he takes a little aside from that rebuke and he focuses on the Lord's Supper. And so he says, read it again. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this section, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of Jesus' words to the disciple during the Lord's Supper. He re-emphasizes this significance, meaning the significance of this event, by saying to, to them, For I receive from the Lord, right? This, this supper is not from Paul. This is not Paul's own words. It's not Paul's decision of, oh, you need to do this. This is from Jesus himself, from the Lord himself, right? So I received from the Lord, and now I'm delivering to you, right? He's, he's emphasizing just how critical, just how crucial the Lord's Supper is, and just how much they have profaned the Lord's Supper. Even more importantly, 
we have to understand the motivation of why Paul is bringing up the Lord's Supper in this moment. Unlike some of the previous chapter, Paul previous chapters in 1 Corinthians, Paul is not bringing up the Lord's Supper to instruct them on communal gathering. He's not bringing up the sacrament as a way to teach them anything about systematic theology, right? On like things like oh how to worship, how to pray, how to sing, how do we preach or teach others? This is not instruction on how to do things for a communal gathering. He's not making a theological argument or a systematic teaching. He is using the Lord's Supper as a practical denunciation of the selfishness and lovelessness of the church. He's bringing up the sacrament as a direct rebuke as a direct contrast to how they are behaving. What does Paul hope the church will do with this reminder? What does he hope that they'll change by reminding them of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to mean? Now, the first thing that he wants them to do is remember. Remember that when we were cast away from God without any prospects of returning to Him, cursed to toil, and pain that Jesus, the bread of life, chose to have his body broken for us so that if we feast on him, we will no longer hunger. Remember, remember that when we deserve nothing but death and hell for not being able to obey the Mosaic covenant that Jesus chose to become the new covenant by sacrificing himself and shedding his blood on the cross as propitiation for our sins. And lastly, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that every time when we practice this reminder of the Lord's Supper, we're supposed to remember Christ and his sacrifice and tremble at the prospect of forgetting him. And we may think, oh, why would I ever forget the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us? And we have all of the Old Testament as a reminder for how easily it is for people to forget the miracles that God performs for his people. We have all of the Old Testament as a constant reminder of how sinful our nature is and how easily it is for us to forget God's grace and glory and his love for us. And we are to remember, lastly, we are to remember that in heaven, we will no longer be partaking in the Lord's Supper. We don't continue to eat the Lord's Supper in heaven. When, when Christ comes again, right, he says, remember until he comes. So remember that in heaven, we don't partake in the Lord's Supper, but we will be feasting with Christ together. We will be feasting in Christ with Christ together. So J.C. Ryle states it like this, The Lord's Supper was ordained for a continual remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ's death until He comes again. The benefit it confers are spiritual, not physical. It affects must be looked for in our inward man. It was intended to remind us by the visible, tangible emblems of bread and wine that the offering of Christ's body 
and blood for us on the cross as the only atonement for sin and the life of a believer's soul. It was meant to help the poor, weak faith to closer fellowship with our crucified Savior and to assist us in spiritually feeding on Christ's body. So one, one note of clarification I do feel needs to be addressed. I didn't want to talk too much about the historical aspects or the traditions of the Lord's Supper. We could be spending multiple sermons talking uh, on this one area of the Lord's Supper, talking about the theology and the history of it. But I wanted to make clear, the, the one thing I wanted to make clear is that whether when we partake in the Lord's Supper, are Christ's body and blood physically present in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper? And this topic was the main idea of debate between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformers and their corresponding head of state in the 1500s. The practice of transubstantiation, which is what the Roman Catholics practice, that's what they've been practicing for thousands of years, is that when the bread and the wine, as we see here, are consecrated by a priest, the elements, though in appearance to be bread and wine, the substance has been now converted to the actual body and blood of Christ. Now, I want to just make clear that we do not practice that idea of transubstantiation or consubstantiation of the Lord's Supper. We are not physically eating Christ's body or physically drinking his blood. Jesus himself refutes this idea that you need to actually eat his physical body to be saved. So the, the Roman Catholics often use John 6, 53-54 when he's talking about the bread of life uh, they use this as evidence for transubstantiation. Jesus says to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks my blood, on uh, my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will arise him up on the last day. Right, so he says that to, a, to the crowd. At that time, he's preaching to the crowd. He's just fed them, fed the 5,000. But right after, is people are confused. You have to remember, a lot of these are Jews. They don't, they're not supposed to eat human beings. They're not, not supposed to be cannibals. So right after, they're confused, including the disciples. The disciples are also confused. right? So he And they're like, Jesus, what are, you, what are you talking about? We have to eat you? We have to drink your blood? What's going on? And, and so right after that, he privately explains to them, in verse 63, he explains to the disciples, thinking when they're thinking, like, I have to become a cannibal in order to be saved, he says to the disciples in verse 63, in the same chapter, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. These are the words that I've spoken to you. You are spirit and life. It is the Spirit that matters and not the flesh. So that's, sorry, that's my small, just I want to make clear that when you come to this table to partake, we're partaking in a spiritual ritual, that Christ is here in spirit, not in flesh. Bishop John Jewell, an early apologist of the Protestant Church, also in the 1500s, states it like this. The difference is this. A sacrament is a figure or token. The body of Christ is figured or token. The sacramental bread is bread. It is not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is flesh. It is, not, it is no bread. The bread is beneath. The body is above. The bread is on the table. The body is in heaven. The bread is in my mouth. The body is in the heart. The bread feedeth the body, the body of Christ feedeth the soul. The bread shall come to nothing. The body of Christ is immortal, 
and shall not perish. The bread is vile, the body of Christ is glorious. Such is the difference here between the bread, which is the sacrament of the body, and the body of Christ itself. The sacrament is eaten as well of the wicked as of the faithful, but the body is only eaten of the faithful. The sacrament may be eaten on the judgment, the body cannot be eaten unto salvation, but unto salvation. Without the sacrament, we may be saved, but without the body of Christ, we have no salvation. We cannot be saved. Transition back to what Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians. He is using, he is stating the Lord's Supper as a way to remind them. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what Jesus has done for you. How can you then still cause divisions, despise the church, humiliate your brothers and sisters in this way? Let's continue to our third point, examine your hearts. So Paul has, after restating the Lord's Supper, he goes back, continues to address the Corinthian church. And in verse 27 and 28, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. First off, it is important to point out that Paul is using unworthy as an adverb, not an adjective. All right, what does that mean? As an adverb, not an adjective. He's saying that if you come to the Lord's table in a way that is unworthy, the unworthiness is describing our heart and actions, not a state of being, since we're all unworthy of Jesus and his sacrifices for us. So Paul is not trying to keep people from coming to the table by saying, you're unworthy. He's saying when you come to the table, come in a way where your heart uh, is thinking certain things or feeling a certain way. So, but what does Paul actually refer to when he says, your eats or drinks in an unworthy manner? So we need to refer back to the context of what's happening in verse 17 to 22 to figure out what Paul means by unworthy. So looking, looking at that context of what's happening in the Corinthian church, we can make kind of three notes of what it means to come in a way that is unworthy. So note number one, failing to appreciate what the bread and cup signify. This is one unworthy way of coming to the table. If we fail to appreciate what the bread broken and what the cup spilled signifies to us, then we are coming in an unworthy manner. Number two, how might we be coming in an unworthy, unworthy way? Failing to repent that our thoughts, failing to repent that our thoughts and actions are inconsistent with the grace and love of Christ. And we see this with the Corinthian church. Unworthy manner number two, we failing to repent that our thoughts and actions are inconsistent with the grace and love of Christ. And our third way we might be, we need to examine ourselves to see if uh, we're coming in an unworthy manner, failing to trust Jesus for forgiveness and for the power to follow in his example to love sacrificially. Third manner, failing to trust Jesus for forgiveness and for the power to follow in his example to love sacrificially. These are the unworthy ways, unworthy ways to approach the Lord's table. 
And therefore, and he continues to verse 28, we should engage in self-examination, which Paul calls the church to in verse 28. Right? Let a person examine himself. So what we do, what does it then mean? How should we examine ourselves to make sure we are coming in a worthy manner? So we just take those negatives, the three negatives, the three unworthy ways that you might come to the table, and we switch them to positives. So examine yourself, point one. Do you see and savor what the bread and the cup signify? The first way of examining yourself, examining your heart. Do you see and savor what the bread and the cup signify? Second way to examine yourself. Do you feel remorse for your thoughts and actions that are inconsistent with the love of Christ and repent of them? Second way to examine yourself. Do you feel remorse for your thoughts and actions that are inconsistent with the love of Christ, and do you repent of them? And this is a small aside, but there's often the discussion of, oh, when should children start to partake in the Lord's Supper? Well, when they actually feel remorse and repent for their actions. Not remorse and repent for getting caught for their sins and actions, but repent and report, repentance and remorse for their actual actions. And way to examine yourself, point three, third way to examine yourself, do you trust Jesus for forgiveness of those thoughts and actions and the power to love sacrificially? Third way to examine yourself, do you trust Jesus for forgiveness of those thoughts and the actions and the power to love sacrificially? So one crucial distinction that I must point out, usually when we engage in the Lord's Supper and Luke or another leader comes to administer the ordinances, we will read this section. Luke usually reads this section from 1 Corinthians and he asks everyone here to engage in self-examination. Uh, and you guys can do that today, hopefully, with the, the three ways to examine yourself that I just stated. Uh, he does this before we partake in communion. And usually, the way we examine ourselves is very vertical. What does that mean? It's, it's simply just between you and God. I examine myself, how, what is my relationship with God like right now? Are there any sins that I need to repent on? Any thoughts or actions that I need to repent on? It's very vertical, right? It's solely between you and God. But in verse 29, Paul says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Now, many of you may take the use of the word body to mean the natural body of Christ, right? Meaning, meaning the bread that was broken. And there are some theologians like Gordon Free believe that, no, the body means the church, right? The body of Christ, which is the church. As Paul referred to in Romans 12.5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members to one another. So there's two ways to uh, kind of interpret the use of the word body in verse 29. I think Paul clearly, when he's actually saying this word body, he's saying not one or the other, but it's both together. I think Paul clearly means both that the natural body of Christ and the church body of Christ, they are bound together in the Eucharistic body or the Lord's Supper. The natural body of Christ and the church body of Christ are bound together through the Eucharistic body, through the Lord's Supper. So when Paul is calling upon the Corinthian church for examination, he's not just calling for them to examine themselves vertically. Right? In chapters 17 to 22, their behavior, he's saying, examine your behavior. He's not just saying, examine your behavior between you and God. 
he's saying you aren't just to look up and exam, examine your individual relationship with God. It's more than just you and God. He's also calling for horizontal examination. Are you unified with the body of Christ? Are you loving the church? That is what Paul is saying when you examine yourself. Don't just examine your, your relationship with God vertical. You have to re- examine your relationships horizontal, specifically with the church. Once again, I say, are you unified with the body of Christ? And are you loving the church? And the church here, just like Paul refers to in verse 18, is not the universal church. We can't examine ourselves to say, am I unified with some believer in Iran, which Luke prayed for today. He's not saying the universal church. The full body of believers that John sees worshiping the Lamb in Revelations. That's the universal church, right? In Revelations, John sees a vision of all the believers worshiping the Lamb. That's the universal church. Paul is not talking about that when he says church. He is talking about the local church, the church that you are attending, the people that you are around you. When he says examine yourself horizontally and do you have unity, means are you unified with your body of believers that you're gathering with every week? And some here today really need to examine their hearts in this aspect. Some here are really good at vertical self-examination and you love Jesus you love Jesus so much you read the Bible every day you don't listen to any secular music only Christian music right the only book you read are are the Bible and other 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 preachers right in your free time you're, you're listening to Christian podcasts or listening to other sermons you love Jesus right you love his grace you love his mercy you love his glory and to put it very directly of course you do Jesus is not hard to love, right? He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords who has sacrificed himself for your sins so you can have eternal life with him. He's not that hard to love. But if it came to horizontal examination, if you are to examine yourself horizontally, are you loving your brothers and sisters the way that you love Jesus? Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't mean family, brothers and sisters, but your Christian brothers and sisters like the way you love Jesus. Are you extending mercy and grace to them like Jesus has extended to you? Or do you choose to have a callous heart because, you know, there are certain aspects that you feel just isn't right. It's not good enough for you. You know, some people, they're just too different from you. Background is too different. Our thoughts are too different. Our beliefs on a certain aspect are too different. So, you know, maybe we just, you know, we, we come to the same church, but we, we just try to avoid each other as much as possible because too much conflict comes from us uh, gathering. Paul makes it extremely clear through these verses that there is no union with Christ apart from union with each other. Let me say that again. There is no union with Christ apart from union with each other. It is through worthy partaking of the Lord's Supper that the body, the church body, is being formed. We have unity with each other here at WSBC today. We have unity with each other not because we're simply in China, not because we all like Harry Potter, 
not because you like Piper more than Keller, not because you're single or some of you are married with kids, not because you share the same hobbies. We are WSBC, we are the local church because we believe in Jesus and his sacrifice for us. That is why we call each other brothers and sisters. I, I always bring up Ephesians 3, uh, if you know me a lot. Josh has heard me bring it up many, many times. And so some of you may be sick of hearing this verse from me, but I, I think it truly shows the plan and the magnitude of the church. So Ephesians chapter 3, 9 to 11, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given, to me, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone that is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not, we don't gather as WSBC because some parent church did this, because history dictates this, because tradition says we should be meeting. We gather because this was, as a church, because this was Jesus' plan, this was God's plan from the beginning of time before he created Adam and Eve, that he is to use the church to share, to spread his glory, that through the church, the world will come to know God, right? You cannot have union with Christ apart from union with the church. You cannot have union with Christ apart, away from, separate from union with the church. God's purpose for your faith is far greater than your own individual salvation and sanctification, you must, you must, 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 according to God's purposes, be gathering at a church. You must be part of a church. I don't mean that to, to say like, oh, join membership or anything, which, yes, you should join membership. If not at this church, then at least at another. Or else how are people, how is someone like Paul nowadays, the modern Paul in this church, maybe it's Luke, I don't know, Luke is not as straightforward as Paul sometimes, or as, <laughs> I don't mean that as a, you know, Paul's very direct, but how is somebody supposed to rebuke you or love you if they don't know who you are, if they don't know anything about your life? You cannot have union with Christ apart from union with the church. God's purpose for your faith is far greater than your own individual salvation and sanctification. Finally, verses 29 to 32, if you do not discern the body, you will receive God's judgment. Paul makes this very clear. In verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if you've judged yourself truly, you've examined yourself well, basically what he's saying, and you are coming in a worthy manner, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So the judgment he refers to in these verses is not eternal judgment. 
right? When he says you will be judged, it's not eternal judgment. It's not at the gates, judges, God is judging whether you will be going to hell or going to heaven. No, he's talking about temporary judgment, right? If you are, if you, when you examine your heart and come to the, the Lord's table, if you are not, if you're coming in an unworthy manner, you will receive temporary judgment. And this is a grace and mercy from God. God's judgment, temporary judgment, is a grace and a mercy from Him. So God is allowing some of you, some, not you, not the point at you, some who are not discerning the body to become weak, even get sick, and even die, so that, in verse 32, we may not be condemned along with the world. This judgment from God is a mercy for us so that we will not receive condemnation. He's doing this out of mercy and grace and love. Hebrews 12, chapter 10 and 11 puts it like this. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness so that those righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's judgment for us is good for us. It's good for our souls. To conclude, on February 4th, 1555, return back to our drama that's happening, Roman Catholic Church versus Reformation Protestants. Two years after Queen Mary I, Queen of England, she's come to the throne. She's a Catholic queen. John, Rog John Rogers, a clergyman and biblical editor, and the first Protestant that was taken to Smithfield and set upon a stake, the place of execution. John Rogers, to mass at that time, he was the first martyr for the Protestant Reformation movement in the Church of England, or in the country of England. At his execution, his executioner, Master Woodruff, a sheriff, he asked Rogers, if you would revoke this abominable doctrine and this evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar, meaning his belief that Christ's corporeal or physical body is not at the Lord's Supper, will you revoke this? Then you will be taken off. You will no longer, you will not need to be killed. Will you revoke this statement? John Rogers answered and said, That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Woodruff then responds, Then thou art a heretic. And Roger quotes, That shall be known at the, at the day of judgment. And Woodruff responds to him, I will never pray for thee. But Roger responds, But I will pray for you. And on that day, in front of his wife and eleven children, one still breastfeeding, he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of Christ's gospel. Queen Mary would later burn some other 290 Protestants for their refusal to acknowledge Christ's corporeal presence in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, some 500 years later, we no longer have to risk martyrdom for our theological beliefs 
of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. We no longer have to worry, oh, if I don't believe that Christ's body is here, that I'm going to be burned upon the stake. But with the same faith, with the same remembrance, and the same self-examination, we should hold the same fervent devotion to loving and being unified with the body of Christ. With that same fervent devotion that Rogers had for the belief, his theological belief, that Christ's physical body is not here, we need to have the same faith and devotion to having unity with the body of Christ, the church of Christ. We need to be willing, like John Rogers was, to be martyred. That's the, that's the same devotion we have to have to loving one another. That is what Paul calls for the church of Corinth. Right? Do not cause these divisions. Do not humiliate people. Do not despise the church. But love one another because Christ has first loved you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come before you as unworthy people, but we examine our hearts to hopefully come before you in a worthy manner, remembering your sacrifices that you willfully took for us, your body broken, your blood shed, so that we may have life and life everlasting with you, but additionally with other believers who share the same belief, Father. Now, Father, give us that holy, sanctified love and patience and kindness with one another here so that there will be no division, so that we do not despise the church and humiliate others, but we sacrificially love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.